If society is smart, we won't view people who are neurodiverse as a glitch in the system, but actually as something that's vital because almost all progress is made by somebody getting sick of the status quo and shaking things up. And if there's one thing uh, neurodiverse people tend to do, it's to uh, shake things up. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Today we have a special guest who is a strategic communications expert helping people discover and craft their story. A former educator and teacher at multiple schools, he is now a distinguished speech writer, speaker, presenter and a facilitator. With a bachelor's degree from Macquarie University studying education, English language and literature, This inspiring leader has an impressive track record of writing TED, South by Southwest, and vivid talks for individuals and designing strategic communications for companies such as ANZ, Private, and Navia. Having worked with the top Australian companies such as NAB and Westpac, and internationally with Facebook as a corporate trainer for leadership and influence, he has also taught presentation and pitching skills to organizations such as IAG and the New South Wales Department of Treasury and IBM. As a speechwriter, he's worked with Beruvium Embassy, the ASX and Shopo. We are thrilled to welcome an intelligent, creative and deep innovative thinker. Lions Youth of the Year judge, someone who's worked pro bono for youth advocacy group Burn Bright and a 20-year supporter of the National Student Leadership Forum. The one and only Nickopedia, also known as Nick Harding. Nick, welcome to the show. Oh, it's fantastic to be here, Craig. How are you this fine day? Uh, yeah, awesome, and better to have you here. Look, we've known each other now for about four years, and uh, I always like absolutely love every conversation we have. Our interactions are always deep, meaningful, and they always go somewhere where I was never expecting, which I absolutely love and know that this conversation today will be no different. One thing I don't know about you though, Nick, is where did you grow up and what was the big, big dream when you were a little kid? Uh, Where did I grow up? My first response to that is I don't actually think I've fully grown up yet. I'm a child at heart, 24-7. I grew up in Sydney, so... uh, Aussie born and bred. In fact, interesting story. 
uh, I'm related to the first white people married on Australian soil, which is Henry Cable and Susanna Holmes. Uh, they came over on the first fleet. Um, they were not guards. They were straight up uh, criminals. Uh, so they came over. They met on the first fleet, fell in love, arrived in this new land and ended up getting married and in the fullness of time after 20 generations produced me. So very, very Aussie, um, born in Australia, Sydney, and grew up in St. Ives and Gordon. And then uh, very, that's a very kind of a delightful, warm, wholesome, conservative place to grow up, uh, which was pretty much an idyllic childhood. And then things changed when I decided to move overseas. But that's probably another question. <laughs> Brilliant. And for you, you know, where did you see yourself? Like, what was something that kind of intrigued you about the world or something you wanted to achieve? Was was there something that kind of played out in your mind while you were racing around the playground and, and, and uh, whatever else you did as a child? Oh, absolutely. Well, the big dream, actually, I don't think I've shared this before because it's, it's kind of odd. My dream was to become a jeweler. So I was completely fascinated by jewels, gemstones, uh, diamonds, etc. So mum tells this story of me uh, going into a, a jewellery store because I'd always kind of like, you know, tuck her hand and say, oh, you know, let's go in there. And as a four-year-old walking in and kind of looking at things and the helpers behind the desk were like, you know, intrigued that uh, this four-year-old boy was just really uh, passionate about diamonds and jewels. And so the jeweller said, oh, we, we very rarely have boys interested in gemstones and jewels. And so he plucked up this diamond ring that was worth like $15,000. This is back in like the early 80s and just kind of gave it to me. And I'm kind of like holding it going, oh, ah, look, this is amazing. And I was completely enjoying the moment and the jeweler was enjoying the moment. And mum was there thinking one thought, which is please don't swallow the ring. <laughs> so that was always the dream is to be a jeweler. And then when I became, uh, I got to about 12 I was huge into skiing. So I started skiing when I was uh, six and started doing uh, jumps at eight and I started doing racing at around uh, 10, started representing the school around 12, a lot of downhill moguls, etc. And I was completely fixated on that and all I wanted to be, I, I forgot my dream of being a jeweller and all I wanted to be was a ski instructor and a professional skier. Wow, that's something I didn't really know. And so did that, you talked about, you know, going overseas and how that, that changed you a little bit as well. Uh, so did skiing take you overseas or, or what was the, what, what drew you to explore beyond the, the shores of Australia? The dream was uh, to go to Germany and to do a lot of skiing there. And so that's why I started to learn German uh, at school. And to be fair, I was... I was horrifically bad at German, like just a, a whole new level. So there were 32 in the class and I came 31st. Um, and the person who came 32nd was my best mate, Robbie. And we sat next to each other and we learned nothing. I can count to 10 in German after about four years of education and that's it. So that kind of put the kibosh on my dream of uh, going to Germany to be a professional ski instructor. Um, I ended up going overseas in between third and fourth year uni. I, I just got a bit burnt out and thought I, I need to have some some time out. So I'd done three years, uh, decided to have a gap year, ended up going to 
Well, depends. Do, do you want to hear the uh, the short version or do you want to hear the uh, slightly embarrassing long version? Yeah, let's do that one. Okay, let's do that. All right. <clears throat> so the master plan was always to go to England. So my grandfather is British. And as I said, I came over in the first fleet. So there's that whole uh, England-British connection. And I studied English literature at uni. So I was fascinated by England. And the plan was to do a gap year over there, be a, what's called a, a rentaroo. So a rentaroo is just... You go to a, a big school, it doesn't have to be Oxford or Cambridge, but it could actually be just a high school, and you do a gap year and you, you're a dog's body who just helps with everything. Um, that was the plan. But when I was applying for it, they said, oh, you're, you're too young. You'll actually be a similar age to some of our students. So that, that um, just didn't happen. So I, I thought, well, I still want to go, so the plan was always to go to England. Then I had this terrible breakup with a, a girl and um, we'd been dating for a year and a half. It got messy and was ugly and terrible. There's a funny bit coming, so wait for it. Um, so we broke up and I said, all right, I'm out, out of the relationship, out of the country. I'm going to go to England. Uh, so I found myself a school to work at, uh, organised uh, the tickets and the place where I would stay. And then it turns out that she decided um, <laughs> to become a stalker and she wanted to join me. Uh, not as with my permission, but as in she just found out where I was going to move and booked the tickets to to move into the town, uh, like right next to it. And I thought, okay, this is a little bit too um, uh, Glenn Close fatal attraction for me. So I thought, how do I get out of this situation? So I counselled it all on a Monday. On a Tuesday, I walked into the Dimmicks building in Sydney, went straight up to the uh, top, which is the Camp Counselors USA office, walked in and said, um, I've got to get out of the country, which is probably a great way to start like an interview. I've got to get out of the country. Um, I need to do a camp. I don't care where I go, what I do, as long as it's Christian. And they went, okay, um, how about horse riding in Ohio? And I said, perfect. I don't know where Ohio is. I can't ride a horse, but it, it's a Christian summer camp for three months. Let's go. And I was on a plane about a month later. So um. Uh, she who must not be named went to England. <laughs> I <laughs> went to Ohio in America and uh, managed to dodge a bullet. So then I ended up living in America for some time and um, now I can ride a horse. <laughs> Outstanding. So would you consider yourself uh, during your formative years as being a leader or more of a follower? Definitely leader, but almost accidental leader. So I wanted to, I wanted to be a prefect, uh, which is when you're in year 11 and 12 and you get the special tie and you get to boss kids around and say, do this and don't do that. But uh, I got glossed over for that. Nobody cared. When I was doing cadets at school, I wanted to be a CUO, which is all the way at the top, but I only ever made it to the middle, which was uh, the platoon sergeant. So when it came to other people noticing me as a leader, it just didn't really happen. But I found myself leading in lots of other places or almost by default. So one place where I did a lot of leadership was uh, at my local church. Our, our church stuffed up its finances and long story short, couldn't pay the youth minister. So halfway through year 11, they just went, oh, we don't have the cash to pay you, sorry. Uh, you're gone. And so he'd left and they had a couple of options. One option was to just shut down the youth group. 
Second option was to find uh, some wildly enthusiastic uh, year 11 student, which would have made me 17, uh, to basically run it for free on a Friday night uh, and as best they could. And they chose me, I put my hand up, and I ended up running this youth group from year 11, year 12, all the way through university. And what that meant was that every single Friday night, I went to a church hall, we managed to grow it from 30 kids to 80 kids, and we, I ended up doing uh, the, uh, the speech slash sermon at the beginning. And I'd uh, be the MC host with the most and get people psyched up. I would write the Bible studies and kind of uh, delegate them to the different uh, year seven to year 12 male and female leaders. And I'd, I'd run a small group, etc. So I just did that because that's my thing. Then when I went to America, I worked on the summer camp and found that as a counsellor, you're leading kids. And I found that super easy because I had years of practice running the youth group. And then when I came back, I knocked off my degree, went into teaching. And in my first year of teaching, about 50% of the teachers who are new found it really hard because there's a massive gulf between theory and practice. It's super easy to read a book about educational psychology. It's super hard to get year nines on a Friday afternoon, period six, to shut up. So, but I had heaps of experience um, running camps, running youth groups. I've, I was an abseiling instructor, caving, uh, canoeing, uh, rock climbing instructor. And I'd, I was used to kind of organizing events and getting teams of people to come together and move forward and have great conversations, often about really deep stuff. So, whether they're talking about God in the Bible or they're talking about English literature and poetry, or where they're talking about life skills, I just found that was my my thing. So I, I call that almost uh, leadership by default. I think it's uh, it's quite common in many successful leaders and and people that are successful in the world is they go beyond the practical and they are constantly experimenting and exposing themselves. In different ways and your strengths your strengths will shine through and go across multiple platforms so to speak so your your natural strengths as a human being can be developed if you whether you are um the camp counselor or whether you're the teacher or whether you're looking after that uh the the church group or you're in a situation at a party like these those skills will shine through if you allow yourself to experiment and expose yourself on multiple times and you, we see so many people in this world um who are fantastic academically or fantastic on the driving range but when it comes to perform they don't have the exposure or the experimentation to from from different areas and and being creative in the way that they uh, they learn or, or develop themselves to really thrive when it really matters. Oh, absolutely. And I've done, as you mentioned in the introduction, a lot of speech writing, uh, whether it's for uh, TED or Vivid, but also a lot of copywriting. So I've written articles for the New York Journal and, and lots of different websites. But probably the weirdest piece of writing I ever did was uh, a friend of mine's dad runs um, a an organization called Black Drum Roasters. This is not an <laughs> ad for them, but he runs this uh, roasting thing. 
and they do coffee, and I found it really just fascinating and wanted to meet him. So my friend Amanda organised for me to go to his uh, huge warehouse to, to see how they roast coffee and, and what they do. When I went there, he's kind of showing me around black drum roasters and he's a master roaster and, and what they do with the, the coffee and it's completely, it's, it's another world and fascinating. But in the process, he said, and this is not speaking out of, out of turn, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying this, but uh, his business partner, this is about eight years ago, had put up on LinkedIn that they roast coffee and they're able to take that coffee and put it into pods. Now, back eight years ago, pods were new. Mm. Like Nespresso was doing really, really well, but the idea of non-Nespresso getting into the marketplace to create specialist pods, that was totally new. And so he just put it up almost as a one-liner on his LinkedIn. Long story short, um, a massive company in South Korea reached out and said, if you can do this, we'll order like a million. And they did, which created a problem for the company because what they had to do is like double their warehouse size, double the amount of machines they bought, like literally buy another roaster. But one of their problems they couldn't solve just by buying equipment was when they put the pods into the sleeves, on the side of the sleeve, you always have a descriptor of the drink. And they that wasn't necessarily their thing. They could verbalize why the coffee was really good, but they needed a copywriter to finesse the language. So he explained that challenge to me. I said, this sounds like a fascinating challenge. So I learned all about coffee and learned how to write on the side of a, uh, a coffee sleeve. This is a, uh, a, a smooth, velvety mouthfeel with caramel undertones. And so they took my copy, put it on the side of these sleeves, and now all the way through kind of um, South Korea is uh, my random ramblings about coffee on the side of uh, you know, coffee sleeves. So the reason I mentioned that is because that was never the plan. Like the plan when I went to the warehouse was just to watch how they do stuff. And the plan when I was learning English literature at uni was not to write about coffee. And the plan when I was standing in front of a bunch of church kids was not to learn how to accommodate people's uh, time and attention. So that organization, uh, we went to a uh, like a world espresso comp uh, competition. You know, who, who's the best like barista in Australia? And so I'm at that competition and I, I'm just watching it. But the host was trying to get everyone's attention to basically shut up, focus on him so that he could introduce uh, the next competitor. And the way he was doing it, it just wasn't working. Like just, it just wasn't working. The people at the back stuffing around, having a giggle, having a laugh. And it was starting to get a bit unruly and chaotic. And I thought, mate, if you don't commandeer everyone's attention in the next 20 seconds, you're done. Like you've, you've lost them for the night and it doesn't work. So I kind of, I moved towards the people who were talking heaps and I went, hey guys in the back, I think he's talking. And then instant silence. And then boom, they got on with it. So what, what I did was a very normal teacher thing, but there's a bunch of stuff going on there. I uh, didn't ignore the fact that they were talking and hoped they'd be quiet. I, I surfaced the fact there was a problem. I physically moved close to them, proximity, which meant that they realized they were um, accountable and the spotlight was being shone on them. 
I used a big voice, hey guys, to get not only their attention, but everyone's attention. So everyone looked at me and then looked at them to make them more accountable. And I said it in such a way where I wasn't like uh, the sergeant or the boss. I didn't say be quiet. I said, hey guys, the guy up the front is talking. We've got an ex-competitor. So it wasn't me directly attacking or confronting them. It was almost as though I was saying, oh, by the way, you probably haven't heard, but we're all listening now. And so that got them to be quiet. Now, that's a transferable skill. I've used that in uh, camps, in events, in community groups, uh, in this particular barista competition. And I've gone on to use a lot of those transferable skills in a bunch of different environments. And I think if you realize that uh, sharpening a skill is useful in, in and of itself for that moment, but it's also useful when you use it for someone else. Mm. I like that. I like that. L- let's, uh, before we go on, I'd love to know, what, what's your favorite coffee? Oh, this, uh, this is going to sound bad. To be honest, it's a flat white. I just, I, I know that it's very pedestrian and um, uninspiring, but I just, I love a flat white. Um, I could never stomach espressos until I went to Rome. Rome's my favorite place on earth. I've been there uh, three times. I've done a an archaeological sites tour when I was doing Masters of Theology, and we went to Turkey, Greece, and Rome for three months to look at a whole bunch of, well, old stuff. And so when I was in Rome, I thought, well, I have to have an espresso in Rome. That's it, It'd be criminal not to. And they just do it better. And it it blew the back of my head out, and I thought this is the greatest thing ever. So I, uh, so I do love espressos, but pretty much only when I'm in Italy. Um, actually, I got recently into uh, filtered coffee. I think they call it batch brew. Mm. And I found it's a bit of a Venn diagram between if you were to get coffee and tea, put them together, and in the middle is batch brew. It's uh, lighter and more floral. It has... Uh, bunch of different uh, tones and top notes and uh, is beautiful, but I can also drink, say, three or four cups of it. But if I was to have uh, a long black, my stomach would be very angry. So my answer is flat white, but if you push me, uh, it would be a batch brew from, say, say Salvage or perhaps a single O in Surrey Hills. Mm. You have a beautiful way with words and and uh, as I mentioned there in the opening around Wikipedia, that's one of the ways we describe you sometimes in our proximity because of your ability to take words, uh, be able to express them in a way that uh, a lot of us can only dream of. Uh, so for you, when you think about the power of influence, how important is our choice of words? I think it's vital and something that kind of bugs me, not too much, I don't lose sleep over it, something that does kind of bug me is when people on communication uh, events always have that famous quote where they say, um, when you're talking, it's only 7% words, but 93% of the communication is not words. Uh, absolute rubbish. Like it, it, That's verifiably false. That's incorrect. It's based on one study done once about... 25 years ago, and uh, with a very small sample size. So it's kind of a little bit questionable, but that's not the reason it's wrong. The reason it's wrong is because 
the it's the second part of the conclusion. the The second part of the conclusion is um, don't you listen to seven percent of your words, and ninety three percent of it is other stuff like your your vibe, your energy, your body language, your sense of conviction, and that is true. But everyone gloss over the first part, which is they listen to your words unless they think you're untrustworthy. So when people don't believe you, that's when they shift from listening to what you're saying to how you're saying it. Mm. So they, they do actually listen to words first. And then if, if they think perhaps you're unreliable or dodgy, then they'll shift to see if your body language is telling them the truth. But what that means is words are vital. Um, I think a lot of people don't think enough about their words. They think about the concept that they want to talk about and that they're subject area masters and they, they really know about it. They have a, a depth and breadth of understanding that's extraordinary. But they don't think of the actual words. Like how are you actually going to say to a group of 23 people who have a small understanding of your topic area, how are you actually going to start? And they'll say things like, well, first I'll do an orientation of the topic, then a definition, and then an introduction of the three core elements. I'm like, you know, that's great, but you haven't answered my question. That's structure. That's how you're going to slice and dice it. I'm saying, what are you actually going to say? So what's the first thing you will say after you've done the whole, you know, thank you for inviting me to your conference. I'm going to be speaking for an hour. My name is Nick, etc. But what's the actual first words you're going to say? A lot of people wing it or they just assume because they're an expert, the words will just simply flow out of their mouth. My experience is that's not the case. So no, not only does your expertise not necessarily help you, sometimes, ironically, it's actually a bit of a handbrake. You know so much that your brain is actually thinking, where do I start? So what I would say is the step zero of giving a good speech is sit down and write out what you will say. Or if you're a bit actually like me, I'm more of a verbal person, you don't need to sit down and write it down, but you need to get your dictaphone or your microphone on your smartphone and just say it. Say, ladies and gentlemen, I want to talk about the world of words. Words are the way that we articulate thoughts. So you take a thought and you wrap it up in words. That way people understand what you're saying or whatever. I'm just winging it. But the point is have a think about what you want to say first and then launch into it. The second thing is people forget that speaking communication is a body sport. It actually happens in real time. It, it, it's not a, not a speech written down. It's not something where you're communicating with someone via text and they send you a text and you've got time to think about it compose your response and send it back. It's happening in real time. So you stand up there and if you find it difficult to pronounce a particular word, well, make sure you don't include that word in your speech. Or I've been doing speech writing uh, with executives and having a chat to a CEO or someone in the C-suite and they said, oh, you changed this sentence from A to B, why did you do that? And I said, oh, well, it's very difficult for the human mouth to shift from saying that word to that word. And they're like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Because most people don't. What they do is they write emails all day or texts or messages and they write their speech and it looks beautiful on the page, but you need to say that. And if, if the sentence has two words that are very difficult to say after each other, or you've got too many of the same letter in one sentence, 
or you've got a word you can't pronounce. I have only one word I can't pronounce, um, <laughs> uh, no matter how hard I try. So I just never say that word. <laughs> it's great. I love that. <clears throat> it's, you know, I think quite often we will notice people when they go to speak, uh, especially when maybe they're a little bit more relatively new to presenting, etc. is they will try to impress rather than express. And so by trying to impress, they're trying to use the big, the big technical words. They're trying to sound intelligent and sound sophisticated. What does, what is, what kind of happens when they do that? And how can we kind of prevent the, I suppose, the downward trek of people switching off because they don't understand? Yeah, you're hundred percent right. I think it's, if the intention for the person is I want to impress as opposed to express, that's a problem because it's me focused. It's focused on me, the speaker, as opposed to uh, you, the audience. And so if you're doing that, you've already lost the game. Uh, communication is, if you actually just look at the word, uh, com means to share. So um, to commune with somebody, to connect with them, to, to live in a commune, communism, you share you know, everything together. Uh, someone argue you share your misery together, but um, so com means to share. And so communication, well, it's about unity. It's about unifying people. So it means I have thoughts in my head and my heart, and I want you to share the thoughts that I have in my head and my heart. But you can't do that because you're not telepathic. You're not a mind reader. So I have to say them out loud. I have to share them. Now, if my focus is on sharing what I'm thinking and feeling so you get it, so we both now have common ground, again, com, we both have common ground, that, that's fantastic. And so I, what I'll do is I'll strip away all the things in my communication that are going to be roadblocks. I'm not going to use slang. I'm not going to use jargon, technical language. I'm not going to use words that are perhaps um, require you to require the audience to do a bit of mental hard yards or a word that's particularly specific or technical. Right, let me give you an example. And this, this is a provocative example, but so, so listen very carefully um, so to make sure you, um, uh, you hear what I'm saying. There's a famous story of a senator, it might have actually been the mayor of New York, but a, a senator in America in the 90s, and he was describing a budget that the government had passed. And so there's all these reporters saying, what do you think about this budget? And the budget was very austere. They had really asked all the governors to pull their belts in and they'd given them less money. Of all the words he could have used to describe the budget, he used the word niggardly. Now, as it happens, he's absolutely right. That's the perfect word. Niggardly is, it means austere, uh, harsh, spare, minimal, reductionistic, and it's the perfect word. Now, here's the problem. Number one, it doesn't sound... It, well, it sounds remarkably like another word, which is now infamously known as the N-word because it's so emotionally charged, that a lot of people thought he said that. And other people who knew what he actually said, said, but why did you choose that word when you could have chosen the word austere? I think you're perhaps unconsciously racist. It became a firestorm. And when he explained it, instead of saying, I shouldn't have used that word I should have used this word, sorry. He's like, well, I'm not going to apologize because it's the right word. Long story short, he got 
inspired. Mm -hmm. So I think if his intention was to communicate, to connect, to uh, get his ideas across, he would have said something like this. This budget is really harsh. It's very miserly and mean-spirited. They used to give us $2 million, Now they've given us $1.5 million. It's so austere that we're going to have to cut programs. We won't be able to fund as many schools. So I'd like to ask you, Prime Minister, you know, President of America, um, which of my local primary schools would you like me to shut down? Now, that's a speech where any mum and dad could go, yep, I get it, I agree. You start using the words he used, which are technically impressive and correct, you lose everything. Uh, you're fascinating how, how that can really make a, an impact on how it lands. You, you talked about before there, you know, people that sit at, all, sit at a desk all day and are writing, etc. Our brain is very good at picking up patterns. And so when we read something, we make meaning of it. And so the importance of being able to speak out what you, uh, what you are writing or what you want to say is super important because that's when you pick up, as you said, those extra words or that something doesn't quite make sense because you can now hear yourself. Uh, for the people, when you're not only when you're working with people that are delivering speeches or people that uh, are in your in your classrooms, how often? do you get them to get them to speak versus write and and the importance of getting them up doing it more often oh it, well it's funny you say that because at the moment i'm actually doing the opposite so i split my time between uh, teaching high school students and teaching entrepreneurs and executives in c-suite so half my time i'm spending as a high school english teacher and i look after year seven eight and nine uh that's because Teaching is my first love and I love it. I also know that it gives my week real rhythm and routine to make sure that I'm you know, on premises at a school three days a week. But I find with them, they're so verbal. They're so brilliantly fluent verbally, mainly because they're the YouTube generation, that they're very comfortable to stand up and talk and to speak and to pontificate and give their opinion. Uh, I find actually uh, adults, some of my 45 to 65 year old clients actually need more help in the, the practical realities of, of speaking. So for, for them, I'm getting them to do more writing because if you can write out your ideas, it often um, helps in your processing of them. So you, you write to understand, you understand to write. So I'm actually doing a lot of writing with those students. But with my um, executive training clients, we, we do heaps of just stand up and tell me about it. Because oftentimes what they'll do is I'll meet them in their office and they'll explain what they're talking about. Uh, they'll say, I was going to give an example. I probably can't actually um, say who this person is. But just as a side note, Craig, a lot of my clients don't necessarily like me to say uh, who they are because um, they're often uh, CFOs who are trying to reposition as CEOs and they don't want to be seen as a threat by the marketplace or they're a CEO, and it, you could argue it, it looks bad if a CEO is needing to do confidence training um, for speaking. I don't think it's a problem. I think, you know, no one's perfect at everything, and it's smart to always be training yourself, but it is what it is. Point being, I remember going into one guy's office, and we sat opposite each other, 
and he explained that he needed to give a speech about a certain thing. And he explained what the speech was going to be about and how he was going to approach it. And I thought, oh my goodness, why do you need me? You're a genius. You're an expert. The way you articulated that is, I mean, I should be taking notes. And then I'm like, okay, great. Well, you know, stand up, just stand near the whiteboard. Uh, he had a slide deck ready to go. And I said, and go. And he was um, underwhelming. And I couldn't believe it. I just I sat there and in real time, I saw a person go from um, sitting casually behind a desk, uh, talking about these things and all the words and ideas and illustrations just rolled off his tongue. And then the second he stood up, it's almost as though uh, his body stiffened and he was had performance anxiety and he, he lost all his his charm and verve and, and joy. So he went from being like, oh, g'day, mate, how you doing? To, ladies and gentlemen, we will be speaking about this. I'm not trying to mock him at all, but that's very common for people to think, oh, I'm now performing. This is a performance. This is very serious. Hmm. And then they kind of lose, like, the, who they are. And and I, my attitude is 80% of the time, we need to know the information you're saying, but we could probably actually get it from other people, from the internet, from uh, journals, from uh, internal communication, uh, etc. But we actually want it filtered through you. We want you to tell us this information with your style, your tone, and uh, your approach. And if you take public speaking too seriously, and you think it's... Um, I'm here to impress people with how smart I am. You'll tend to use language that alienates and you'll also have a style that's uh, not, not casual and relatable and connecting as though you're, um, there's a barrier. I've noticed something, um, and you might have noticed this too, Craig, that the more work I do with C-suite, the less ties I'm seeing. I do, when I started eight years ago, ties left, right and center. Now it's not uncommon at all to, to walk in and even the the boss of bosses isn't wearing a tie. And I don't think it's just the casualization of the workforce because of working from home. I think somewhere along the line, people have said, it is more important I do a good job than I look good. And the tie might actually be a barrier between me and my audience. So if I remove the tie, perhaps there's more uh, connection. And I feel as though if you remove the tie to connect better, it's the same with language. Re- remove the jargon, remove the slang, remove the, the big words to demonstrate how smart you are, remove that, and I reckon you'll actually connect better. Fascinating. Now, talking about connection here, we will naturally fall into our default learning or thinking style. But when we're connecting with an audience, they may not learn and think in the same way. So how important is it for people to understand how different people may think or learn? And do we need to cater towards them or just be, just sit in our default? Oh, great question. Uh, vital, absolutely vital to, to understand basic human psychology and just even understand that the way you're inclined to listen and process information is not universal. So for me, I could sit in a university lecture for seven hours straight. I'm very uh, auditory. I just absolutely love it. For 
three quarters of the human population, that would be a nightmare. It might be fine for 50 minutes, but unless you included visual uh, stimuli, uh, kinesthetic uh, stimuli, you know, movement, getting up, actually physically manhandling the the thing that you're trying to uh, understand, if you didn't include that, then you'd lose 75% of your audience. So I think the first thing is realizing that everyone is different. So the people who love listening is not everyone. And the second thing is um, you need to know your subject matter so well and hold it loose. So if I'm explaining a concept to a person and the the example I give is, um, oh, let me give you a great example. It is very common for males to use sporting analogies and war military analogies when talking about teamwork in the corporate sphere. It doesn't work. It doesn't work for women. Now, it's not that women don't understand it. I mean, it's women play sport and women are uh, heavily involved in the, the military in a range of different, uh, you know, ways. So obviously, intellectually, yeah, sure, they get it. But emotionally, they don't necessarily connect with it as strongly as a man would. So it's just a poor example. So if you're trying to say we need to work together as a team, like a, a rugby team works together, that's maybe not going to hit home. And you think, oh, there are, there are women in the audience. Well, in addition to a rugby team, it's also like a netball team. That's differentiation. And that's good. But I just, I just steer away from just using sporting analogies. Now, that doesn't mean you can't talk about the military or sport. That's silly. What it means is knowing what's going to hit home with the audience. And so you only really know what's going to hit home with them, A, if you know about humans, people, psychology, and B, if you actually know about your audience. Like it, if, if I walk into a room and I know that uh, seven-eighths of the females in the room are mothers, then I'm, I'm going to take that into account. I'm Perhaps I might use an illustration or an example or a shout-out to that particular world experience because I know that it'll be relevant and probably it'll help build rapport and, and connection. So knowing your audience is almost as important as knowing your subject matter. Yeah, I know that with uh, a baby who's nearly eight weeks now, that any time I talk about parenthood or being a father or baby uh, turns most females' heads pretty quick and they their attention is right there. Uh, some males as well and, and other genders, but you know, predominantly the females will just like that the constant attraction to what you're saying uh whereas yeah you do notice that when when i talk about sport or when i um yeah even even a lot about sort of corporate stuff the males will generally tend to be a lot more focused than the females in in holding their attention um so it, it is important it is important to understand that now a term that has been sort of coming to prominence a lot over the last sort of few years is around neurodiversity you know, we talk about diversity in the workplace. We talk about obviously inclusion, etc. But the neurodiversity, and I've always been really fascinated. For me, for whatever reason, uh, people who have autism or ADHD uh, or somewhere on the spectrum, I have naturally gravitated to, and for whatever reason, have been really good in regards to teaching or coaching in that space. You know, when I was learning to swim 
uh, working in schools, etc. And I've always, for me, I, I'm just fascinated in the space of you can do something different than what I can. What is it? And how can we unleash that? Um, so for you who's now worked in both the corporate and educational spaces, you know, from young kids right through, the understanding of neurodiversity and the power that it can bring to teams or to the world, what, what have you noticed or what are you seeing? Well, yeah, uh, th- th- this for me is very uh, personal because I kind of fall into uh, the category of being uh, very much uh, neurodiverse. So neuro meaning uh, brain, like a you know neuroscientist or a neurosurgeon. So it's all about having different brains. Now, at, at the end of the day, I mean, we gave that illustration about uh, military and sport. To be fair, humans are humans and we have a huge amount uh, in common. Uh, the English poet John Donne speaks about uh, males and females uh, being like a, a compass. And when he says compass, he doesn't mean kind of north, south, east, west. He means one of those uh, those old school things that you put a pencil on the side, you twist it around to draw a circle. And his idea is that um, uh, if you think of a, a compass, if you splay it apart, the male and female or the masculine and, and feminine qualities are very different because they're, they're apart. One is on one side of the compass, one is on the other side of the compass. But at the end of the day, it's still both of those come towards the center point and they're actually joined together because we are, we are human. So I think the first thing to say is that we have more in common than we have um, different. So John Gray's men are from Mars, women are from Venus, I think is, an, is, a, is a stretch. And we see that um, in behavior and inclination, but we also see that, see that in the brain. Like we're just, we have all virtually identical brains, but there are differences. I mean, just on the male-female thing for one second, uh, the, the brain has two parts, brain hemispherically, the, the left and the right. Uh, the left tends to focus on uh, language and logic and uh, discrete chunks of information. Uh, the right tends to look at more broad uh, synthesis and, and connect connectivity between information, you know, art, passion, emotions, etc. So obviously you need both sides and they need to work together. And they work together by having um, a tunnel, I think it's called the uh, corpus callosum, uh, corpus callosum, anyway, I'm not, not great at that particular Latin word, but it has a bridge between them that gets the information from the left to the right and from the right to the left. Interestingly, in females, that tunnel is twice the size as males. So it shouldn't surprise us at all that they have a tendency to be better at um, multitasking. So on the one hand, there are brain differences and we need to take them into account. On the other hand, we're all humans and it is what it is. Yeah, so talk about uh, neurodiversity. So, I mean, let's let's just dial down into, say, ADHD. Um, it's 5% of the Australian population. And there's a, a bit of a myth out there that it's overdiagnosed. Somewhat ironically, not only is it not overdiagnosed, it's actually underdiagnosed massively. And, and this is, this is terrible, it's very much undi- uh, underdiagnosed for women. And the reason for that is because the H in ADHD, hyperactivity, um, hyperactivity for males tends to manifest 
physically, as in they fidget, they tap, they move around, they just they, they swivel their head, um, and they play a lot of um, uh, sport. They're always running around, almost like you know when dogs get the zoomies. You know, it's just kind of obvious to to see. Oh, that ten year old boy has ADHD. The way it manifests in women, and it can be virtually identical, but it tends to be uh, inattentive. So there's kind of three different forms of ADHD. There's um, hyperactive, inattentive, and uh, a combination. So for um, women, they it tends to manifest as uh, inattentive. So they'll just they'll zone out. They won't pay attention. But for the people who are trying to work out if they have it, like their parents their teachers, your focus is hijacked by the kid, by the boy who's tapping around and, and being a nutbag in class. And he's really obvious. So he he hijacks all your focus and attention and you say, well, he's got issues, so I'll send him to the, um, you know, whatever, the counselor or the psychologist, psychiatrist, and we'll see if we can get that diagnosed and medicated. Often women go under the radar because uh, they're just not as annoying or uh, obvious. Hmm. Um, and, and I say annoying from the fact that uh, having been a teacher, if you have a kid with uh, ADHD, it can be a real frustration. So I need to remind myself that yeah, it can be a, a blessing and a curse. And perhaps the curse is it's super hard to sit in a classroom for an hour and focus on a whiteboard. But the blessing is they tend to be uh, ADHD is correlated to high IQ. It's correlated to sense of humor. It's correlated to um uh, what's called diffused thinking, which often uh, results in creativity. Uh, they can be very uh, generous and enthusiastic um, with their uh, emotions. So we often think ADHD is simply a brain thing, but it also affects the central nervous system and uh, the emotions. So they often can be very emotional, um, which has its own problems, but it also means they can be sensitive and perceptive and compassionate and aware of other people's states of being. So oftentimes they'll be able to walk into a room and say, hmm, that person over there, something's wrong. And you think, how did you do that? But actually they have a, a radar of uh, all the the non-verbals that are happening around a person. So um, yeah, it's, it's, a fascinating, it's a fascinating world. And I think if society is smart, we won't view people who are neurodiverse as a glitch in the system, but actually as something that's vital because almost all progress is made by somebody getting sick of the status quo and shaking things up. And if there's one thing uh, neurodiverse people tend to do, it's to uh, shake things up. Shake, rattle and roll. Yeah, it's, it's a... Yeah, beautiful, beautiful thing. And I like I like for me, I'm always looking to learn more about it because and I try and surround myself with more neurodiverse people because I just see the creativity and the innovation that comes through and the different perspectives, which is so valuable because we do get very much caught in our own lives around our own perspective and we can be a bit tunnel visioned in a way. We were talking before we came on ear around what we call the point of performance. And, you know, this is such a, an, an important part when it comes to being a leader um, or someone who's going to perform, uh, perform in something. Are they going to speak? Are they going to uh, step up and do something for the first time? Or are they going to um, showcase their art or, or play sport, etc.? But there's the point of performance, which 
requires us to be in a non-rigid state. And so I'd love to just dive into this bit, bit more around the fascination you have recently around the point of performance. Oh, absolutely. So I, I have uh, ADHD and I was always slightly ashamed or embarrassed or surprised that people would send me information and really set me up for success. But because that information was in an email sent three weeks before the big event, for me, it's just in a memory hole. Like I, I got the email, I read the email, I understood the email, but three weeks have passed. That, that's like an age. And so in, in ADHD world, they say it's half a joke and half serious. Uh, there are only two times, now and not now. So that email from three weeks ago is not now. So what I had to do is realize that oftentimes my performance wasn't as good as it could or should have been because people thought they'd set me up. But actually what happens is two minutes before I walk into something, I need the person to say, oh, by the way, X. I'm like, great, thanks. Now, people don't tend to do that because they say, well, uh, one, I told you X three weeks ago uh, and you should know it. And two, I don't want to fill your brain with something just before you walk on stage. But for me, that's actually what I need. I need the information not ages ago. I need it at the point of performance. So I've been in situations where I've been asked to, as a MC host, introduce somebody and I have Googled them, read something in the 90 seconds before I get on stage and then introduce them and they've said, oh, that's the best introduction I've ever had in my life. I've also, <laughs> and this will make me look like an idiot, but it's a true story. I was once emceeing an event and I had to introduce a very, very famous uh, Australian um, entrepreneur, millionaire. And the person had sent me their bio, but the person who sent the bio was this person's uh, executive assistant. And when it bounced into my inbox, I just somehow <laughs> got focused on the executive assistant's name. And then I, long story short, I ended up introducing the wrong person. So I get up on stage and I'm like, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this person. They've done one, two, three, four, and five. And she gets up and she's like, um, yeah, no, that's not me. And I haven't done one, two, three, and four, five. And I'm like, oh, well, um, take it away. Now, to be fair, it was, it was Joe Burston. She's the um, uh, entrepreneur who... Uh, wrote a book called Rare Birds, which is um, empowering women to get more into um, entrepreneurship and to be uh, honoured for their contribution. To be, to be fair, the problem was uh, the name of her executive assistant happens to be very, very similar to a person she talks about in her book, Rare Birds. So I put two and two together, got five, ran with it, got enthusiastic about it and uh, introduced the wrong person. So that's a mistake you make once. But um, what would have saved me is if like two minutes before I went on, someone just gave me a sheet of paper that said, um, Joe Burston ran this company, exited with a $40 million profit, now runs Rare Birds, etc. And I would have gone, boom, done, it's in the brain and we move on because I, I have a, a, a terrible working memory. Like it's just, it's, it's outrageously bad, which is super unfortunate because my memory in general is great. So people get a bit weirded out. They're like, well, which one is it? Do you have a good memory or a bad memory? And my answer is both. 
So that's a bit of a, a challenge. But just to move it back onto leadership, leaders are so busy mentally that we forget that in order to perhaps best set them up for success, when you're speaking to them, you need to speak in sound bites and you need to say less. They got it's almost as though they have 32 tabs open in their brain at any one time. And then they have a quick five minute meeting with you and you tell them 17 things. That's, it's not going to sink in. It's not that they don't care or have the cognitive ability to get it. They've got 32 tabs open. Just tell them the big picture, the one standout idea, the key message, and it's more likely to um, for them to get it in real time, for them to um, remember it at a later stage, and it's more likely to intrigue them so they say, hey, tell me more, or uh, they write you an email later and say, I'll send over your slide deck so you can flesh out the details. So in that moment, if you understand the point of performance, it's knowing that their brain is full, so less is more and keep it simple. Which for some people, if you're given an opportunity to pitch a big idea to investors or you've got an opportunity to connect with the CEO, they want to say everything, but uh, less is more and that'll have a bigger impact. Can we have 99 tabs open on a screen? Because uh, my brain feels like that at the, <laughs> the last couple yeah, yeah, of days as a CEO. 99 tabs and, and the music's coming from somewhere. <laughs> uh, 100%. We all know smart people have great answers, Nick, but the, the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Oh, that, and this is going to sound silly, but go with me on this. Um, whenever I go to the beach, I've always gone uh, in the morning or you know, the middle of the day, you know, sun, fun in the sun. But... I've recently started to uh, swim at, at like say 5 p.m. at, um, let's go down to my local. Uh, I've never really done that. And now I'm going swimming with my brother-in-law, my sister, and I've never really done that. I've kind of, I, I would normally go by myself in the morning, more of a like a go into the cold water and wake up. But now I'm going with friends and family and we just kind of noodle around. So there's no dive into cold water to wake up. It's more, uh, let's, Let's have a gentle swim, perhaps see if we can see some blue gropers and then uh, just, you know, lie on our back and kind of uh, just decompress from the day. And so that's probably something I haven't done, yeah, ever before. It's just like chill out in the ocean. I must say that's the first time I've had an answer like that, which I, which I like. It's good. Hmm. Very different. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Why... Isn't school more interesting? I kind of quit being uh, a school teacher because I couldn't answer that question. Um, I started teaching the year 2000, quit at the end of 2014. So I gave it over a decade. Uh, moved into corporate training, speech writing, copywriting. Uh, had some extraordinary experiences doing facilitation kind of all around the world. Now, and, and people would often say to me, um, but don't you miss teaching? And I would answer, well, I'm still teaching. I've just gone from teaching kids to teaching adults and teaching Shakespeare to teaching more general communication. So instead of um, formulating your ideas in an essay to be persuasive, you're just 
formulating your ideas in a presentation to be persuasive. So same, same, but different. But I've gravitated towards school again because I think there's now no reason for it not to be interesting. Like perhaps back in the day there were reasons, I don't think there were, but it just it just seemed to miss, miss the mark. But COVID uh, has been totally fascinating for schools because what it did is kids couldn't go to school or regularly. So what the teachers would have to do is to uh, take the lesson that would happen in real time and either do the same lesson and have it filmed, uh, let's say streamed or filmed and, and put online, say through a learning management system like Canvas, or you'd actually have to really think about what you're going to teach and include uh, far more uh, diverse ways of teaching. So instead of it just being chalk and talk and conversation with the class, when there's no class there and it's super hard to listen to someone lecture for an hour, you have to have all this diversity. And so teachers got in the groove of, you know, putting visual stimuli uh, on the learning management system, um, having short lectures as opposed to large ones, doing things with really, really diverse and interesting uh, modalities that they perhaps hadn't done before. Now that schools are back, uh, the teachers are importing all those skills back into the classroom, and I reckon it being better teachers. So they've still got, they're still putting things online to make sure that kids who are uh, sick or ill or have chronic fatigue or are physically in another place uh, can gain access to the education. But I think the actual teaching in the schools is, is better because COVID forced us to think outside the square. So yeah, that, that would be my answer is why aren't schools more interesting? And I think we're getting there, but I think there's a, a long way to go because non-school is so fascinating. Like uh, Call of Duty is majestic. It is. It has everything. It's got color, sound, adventure, storyline, um, uh, thresholds to be crossed. It's uh, challenging enough for you to be kind of you know engaged and interested, but um, you can gain mastery in certain ele- elements of it. It's cheeky. It's sneaky. It's um, it, you've got the collegial aspect of being able to talk to your mates um, and friends through your, your earphones and you know, while you're, you're playing it. So, and, and you're actually on a journey. And there's enough kind of breadcrumbing and little things that you get um, commended for on the way. So it's perfection on a stick. And then that's what they do on a Sunday afternoon. And then they come to school on a Monday and they've got a teacher talking about an old book. So I'm really interested to say, I happen to believe that the old book is amazing, but if it just stays um, closed and covered in dust, no one wins. And if teachers are boring, they're not um, being the proper duty and service to kids because the stuff that exists in old books is often deep wisdom that's been accumulated over centuries. And if we can rip it out of the book and speak it into existence and students can listen, uh, it's going to have a massive difference. And Craig, you're probably thinking, that sounds a little bit like what we do at Speakers Institute Corporate, not necessarily talk about Shakespeare, but actually saying you have something in an old book. In this case, you have a white paper or a uh, report or some statistics that you need to present to the team. You need to uh, suck that information out of the report and 
illustrate it in such a way and sequence it in such a way where people go, one, I get it, and two, gosh, that's fascinating. It's the evolution of education. Um, yeah. And, and it's happening probably faster than it ever has before, which is fascinating to see what it's currently doing and where it's going to go in the future. Uh, final question. Uh, for you, what is an inspiring great leader? And who is a great example of this either current or previous that you look up to in a way? Yeah, sure. I think I'm a huge fanboy of a English writer and theologian called G.K. Chesterton. And he's probably most famous to, um, uh, to, to non-Christian audiences for writing a book called um, uh, A Man Called Thursday and the, the Father Brown Mysteries. So if you're into crime fiction, you might have read The Father Brown Mysteries or watched the TV show. He's the guy who wrote that. But he also wrote about 100 books. He's a freak of nature. And I love the way he explores uh, paradox. He's just uh, he, he's a genius and I'm uh, a big fan of his. He's got this fantastic quote. And it helps us understand, well, it helps us understand Nazis, but also helps us understand ourselves. And the quote is this, if you educate a man's mind, but not his heart, you get an educated barbarian. And having done a, a degree in history, I know that the, um, the leadership of the Nazis were very, very smart, very intelligent. They're all university educated. They'd gone to the University of Bonn, the University of Bern, and the University of Berlin. So all very, very smart, but I would suggest they had their mind educated, but not their heart. So therefore they became an educated barbarian. So just because you know stuff doesn't mean that you are ethically and morally um, humane. And so his GK Cheston's ability to explain concepts like that, because sometimes we think, oh, a person would only do something bad if they're ignorant. Like, no, no. Sometimes they're aware and they're actually super smart. They're just doing it bad because they've got a dark heart. So I love G.K. Cheston. Um, and interestingly enough, probably my, my best bosses, and I won't actually name names, actually I will for one, Sue. Um, my best bosses have been uh, sitting in the space of being super organised and so it's so a real kind of um, organized, focused, diligent, um, moving things forward, getting stuff done, crossing the I's, dotting the T's, but, <laughs> uh, really action oriented and nurturing. And so I'm, well, I'm quite, a, I'm a confident person, but I also need a lot of reassurance, um, so, which probably makes me normal, <laughs> to be honest. But um a good leader is someone who can see that. So a poor leader would look at me and say, oh, he's confident and competent, he'll be right. But a really great leader like uh, Sue and a few other leaders I've had in my life have been able to say, oh, he's confident and competent and will enjoy that and leverage it, but he also does need reassurance, So, which is something that confident people don't seem to, um, people gloss over that. So I think I think a, a good leader is someone who can set a vision and push you towards it, but also pull you uh, towards it as well. So the pushing is sometimes, uh, here's the due date, you've got 12 hours, you know, how are you tracking, get on with it. 
but the, the pulling you is more kind of warm, nurturing, saying, hey, you can do it. Great work over there. Uh, you're on the right track. That's wonderful. And a great leader can be both um, uh, nurturing, but also every now and then have a small whip and say, oi, get on with it. <laughs> Nick, uh, you've been fascinating to listen to today. And I've, no, I've learned a lot. And I'm sure many people out there listening would love to learn more about what you do. So what is the best way people can connect with you? Uh, the best way is, well, I love LinkedIn. So that's uh, a super easy way for you to do it. Or if you want, you can look up uh, nickharding.com.au and that'll have uh, my services, which are basically broken down into two things. One, if you know what you want to say, I can help you write that up and just write a speech or write a presentation. That's, um, I was, I was going to say, easy for me. What I'll say is I do that with a certain amount of ease. I've got a lot of experience and I love it. And my second one is bigger and broader. That's uh, working out what your message is. Um, how do we codify that, package it into IP, position you well in the marketplace and move it forward. Uh, I've done that for you know, hundreds of uh, clients in a range of different verticals, both in Australia and overseas. And yeah, it's actually a real joy. So yeah, nickharding.com.au or LinkedIn. And yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. So yeah, shoot me a message. Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure listening to you today. We will put those links in the show notes uh, so people can find them easily. From uh, talking about how you escaped uh, a stalker to <laughs> the evolution of education to new neurodiversity, it's been a fascinating conversation and I think people will take a lot from this. I, I really love your passion for helping people you know, be able to get clarity and also be able to influence more effectively. Uh, and, you know, really highlighting the power of words. And I think a lot of the times, as you mentioned, we get so, there's so much talk around the nonverbals and the influence that has, but the actual words um, are the starting point. You know, they, they have a massive impact in our first impressions of people and the ability to engage us. Uh, so, yeah, really, really enjoyed this conversation and looking forward to having more with you around how we can harness the uh, a neurodiverse world um, and how we can continue to evolve education so that it's a fun place to be in, whether that's with students at school or whether that's uh, with adults in the big working world of corporate. Uh, I think that's a, it's a fascinating one that we can continue to, to learn and thrive off. Um, so I'm going to let you go shortly so you can enjoy a flat white and maybe chase it down with an espresso <laughs> if we can get a good one from Italy. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for your time today. Excellent. Uh, absolute pleasure. Thanks, Craig. And we'll talk soon. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag inspiring great leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next inspiring great leaders podcast. Where the ordinary don't belong.